Welcome to this week's Into the Wilderness podcast. I mean, it is actually an extra show. Uh, so you'll be getting another show in a week, which I know will make some of our listeners very happy, including some of the farmers that we know listen to the show. We've had a lot of farming pictures recently. Yeah, we have. Tractors with podcast stickers. And we know that the the general complaint is and there isn't enough shows. Uh, so we're bringing a new one, and this is actually from the film festival. These are speeches from the, the various people. I think nearly every person is actually introduced. So yeah, the, the think, first speech is so. from Byron. Uh, you probably will recognize his voice because he's... Well, what are you trying to say? <laughs> saying right, he's on the show. So, um First one's from Byron, and then I think it goes David CP, uh, who's been on this show twice before, and then it goes uh, DFM Delanger, he's been on this show before, and then it goes Sam, Sam Thompson, Thompson's which has been on this show before. Yeah, so. he was, Sam Thompson was the first show of 2018. Yeah. Uh, we did a full podcast with him. So. Um, but yeah, some great speeches, and the theme is the future of hunting. Which, so. which is a theme that kind of carries through... All of our podcasts, almost all of the podcasts. So it, it should be right along the lines. If you enjoy the podcast, which if you're listening to this, I'm guessing you probably do, uh, you you will enjoy that. You will enjoy the speeches, and it'll give you a little flavour of the evening. Uh, there are, um, if you do want to go and watch them or just have a look, all these speeches are actually on YouTube now as well. Um, I've just uploaded them on the Into the Wilderness channel, and the films, the winning films, are also going on there. There is one up right now, and I will get to the rest of them this week. Yes, um, and I'm trying to think if there's any other news. Oh, Modern Huntsman is back in stock. Um, I can see that one of the boxes is pretty empty already. Uh, so if you want a copy and you want it in the next uh, you know, week or two weeks, then order it now, otherwise you're going to have to wait at least another month. I would imagine that probably in, in fact, the next... It's going to be longer than a month because Modern Huntsman as a whole has actually sold out. Mm-hmm. So I think they're only restocking... End of June, I think I said. Well, in June at some point. <laughs> so... Actually, we could be the only people with copies in the world for sale right now. And I would think in the next three weeks, it'll be back to pre-orders because we need to keep um, a one actually, box a, for, for Schoon. That's actually yeah, a very good point. Schoon. So actually, looking at that box, there might only be five or six copies. I think there's maybe ten. Maybe yeah, ten. Yeah, I think there's maybe ten. Okay, copies. well, there you go. So if you want a modern huntsman, don't dilly-dally <laughs> and... Uh, Order one. And I should also say, because a number of people have requested this, and it's not something that we've necessarily offered up, but I think there's three or four people have requested signed copies by Tyler. um, six people. Is it? Okay, there you go. (laughs) Uh, And uh, we were able to get some of those out because Tyler was here, um, hence the podcast with him a week ago. Uh, But if you do want a signed copy, you'll just have to be prepared to wait for it. And in the next shipment, we'll we'll get some signed copies over. So So feel free to place an order, but just leave a note. Yeah, make sure you put in the notes you want a signed copy, and then just be prepared to wait for at least two months or so. Uh, You've got to be patient. You've got to be patient. Um, Oh, podcast stickers, they were completely sold out. Um, and we've got another 250 in stock, and uh, I imagine they'll go fairly fairly swift as well. So they're back in stock, and I think that's about it. Well, that is it. Apart from, uh, we're, um, we're going to bring you an extra competition. 
Oh yes, that, this is very cool. And, this is cool. Um, it's more useful for the people in the UK than anyone else. Um, but just, if you want to take a flight over here, <laughs> yeah, you're more than welcome to have a flight. And if, you, in fact, if you are flying from another country, we can even put you up if you, if you are. If you are that, that <laughs> you better crazy. be careful with that offer, though. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say what accommodation. <laughs> uh, so uh, we uh, are well at the end of June. Uh, the 30th of June through to the 1st of July is the Scottish Game Fair held at Schoon Palace. It is probably our favourite... It is our favourite outdoors game fair of the year, I've by been, far. I've been going there uh, you know, since ha- the beginning of high school, so it must be 15, 20 years. I had to just write a, a spiel for the website yeah. today, and I worked out, for me, it was 20 years. 20 years. So and I think I've maybe missed one or two shows. I think I might have missed one or two I think I was in. I've missed them because I've been in Africa. Yeah. I think is the reason. So it, it's it's fantastic. It's an incredible family day out. It's far more than just for hunters. It is for everybody. If you just enjoy the countryside, I guarantee you there will be something there from you for you. From they've got massive craft tents to tremendously huge food stalls. Huge food halls. They're off, they're often doing demos of um, food. I know that they're definitely doing butchering demonstrations. Yeah, well, this year. Th- yep, exactly. And the food that you can get every year, we end up buying the curry that's in the the stall. There's, there's, uh, every year, every yeah. year, there's a there's a curry stall there, and then I always come away with some form of cheeses and jams and those boar kind of sausages. Oh, it's so good. Venison pies from Fletcher's. I always get some venison pies yeah, from Fletcher. It's it's really really good. Um, um, but but, like, but there's fishing rows and gun gun makers rows, so the, the whole spectrum. And there's there. there's a main arena as well. And there's a dude that comes nearly every single year. I've actually got his book, and he um, herds ducks with his dogs. It's honestly the one of the best shows you can see. Is it the same guy that does the sheep? Yeah, yeah, it's the same guy that has the dancing sheep. Dancing sheep, which is something a spectacle. <laughs> I I don't know how I missed it in so many years. I guess because of different parts of the show. It's, but I, it's but because he puts it in a trailer towards the back. That's right, near the river. Yeah, yeah near the river. Uh, and if you're going to, well, if you're not going to the the game fair, you should. Even if you're like way south of the border, over into England, make the journey up because. It really will open your eyes as to what a great game fair is. It's on uh, a, but go and see the dancing sheep. It's on a scale that you can see everything in a day. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just. Just. It's still big. Um, there is lots of beer. There's lots of Prosecco. There's uh, there's always events going on. There's always events going on. So. And, and it should be said, one of, one of the great reasons to support this game fair is it's run by the GWCT, or a branch of the um, Game and Wildlife Conservation Trust, who we are big supporters of. As many podcast listeners will know, we actually have a coffee dedicated to them, the McNabb, and a, a pound of every bag of that goes to the GWCT. So by going to this game fair, you are, in a way, supporting the GWCT and the scientific work that they do, because that's the purpose of the game fair is to help raise funds for that organization. So if you needed a reason to go, that's a bloody good one. Uh, but that whole spiel has been for one reason, and one reason only, uh, apart from the fact that we are going to be there, we're going to have our own tents, you'll be able to come visit us. But we've got a pair of tickets to give away. A pair of uh, ad- well, adult tickets, so it could be for well, yeah, and one adult a- and a kid. Adult and below. Yeah. So. Um, so we have a pair of adult tickets, and we're going to make it very simple. It's going to be a social media uh, competition. Mm-hmm. And Daryl has the ways. So basically, it will be on Facebook and on Instagram. On Facebook, we will put up a picture from the show. You'll see it. You won't miss it. It'll probably be something from the arena that we took last year. Um, and below on Facebook, all you need to do is tag 
the person that you would take with you. On Instagram, I know that it works a little bit differently. So all you need to do is just comment below saying, I want those tickets. And the only condition on it is one, you go. And secondly, uh, you only enter the competition if you can actually make the dates. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was just thinking we, we should probably, because it's going to be completely randomly selected, we, we need to open it up to email as well. So Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Please I mean, feel free to email us if you don't social. With all of our competitions, there we know we have a number of listeners that don't use social media, and that is totally cool because social media is a like, pain in the ass. A pain in the ass. <laughs> um, just email us and you'll be put into the, the ballot with any of our competitions. We're, we're fair like that. And the email is podcast at paceproductionsuk.com. Uh, nice and easy. Yeah, it should be in the description as well. And uh, yeah. We will be having, um, I don't know what it's going to be yet. Uh, we did it at the Northern Shooting Show, which has just passed uh, two weeks ago. Uh, but we will have stuff to give away and social media giveaways actually at the show which is going to give you a reason to come and visit us yeah. uh, I, it's going to be either something from Hornady Caldwell Smith Optics um, Tipton um, we'll have Tipton stuff Gun don't worry There'll be one of those brands probably we will have something to give away uh, and we will let you know in, in shows as, as we lead up and how you need to enter so keep an ear out for that so don't miss any shows between now and the game fair and because this is an in-between show, on the next show, we are recording a lot of shows this week, uh, but I believe the next one should be Kim Hughes GC, and this is going to be an absolutely brilliant podcast. I don't know if people remember months ago now, I mentioned uh, a book that I listened to uh, on Audible, and it was called Painting the Sands, and it was about uh, it was about Kim Hughes and what he did in Afghanistan to get the the George Cross, which um, is the highest gallantry award that anyone can get in this country. And uh, I think we'll leave everything that goes on for the next podcast. But if you want to find out more quickly, just go and Google him. He comes up, He's um, he, you can download an audio book, hardback and also the paperback came out last week but i'm sure we'll plug that lots in the we will. in the in the next one but i mean if you want to get a jump on it it's uh, the audiobook i think is only about eight or nine hours long so it's if you've got a little bit of a journey coming up you can cover it before the next show it. yeah exactly um and a lot of my friends listen to it um and i yeah we're both barns listen to it so i'm uh, really excited to come i mean it's, it's going to be awesome just to talk to him about that and about his his life experience uh, but he's also a hunter. Yeah, he does. Uh, yeah. And in fact, the the con this contact came about through a podcast listener, John from uh, the uh, Blackwell's uh, Gunsmiths, and he who is I think it's Gunroom underscore manager on yeah, Instagram if yeah. you want to follow him. Uh, and he basically said, "Hey, I heard you guys were mentioning that book." Kim just walked into the gun shop the other day to order a rifle. So, would you like us? Would you like me to put you in contact? And we're like, yes, please yes, do. Yes, please. And yesterday he phoned Daryl to say, "I'm ready." When yeah. do you want us on? <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, it's really cool. Uh, this guy he disarmed over 150 IEDs in like a six or seven month deployment in Afghanistan, which is probably more than most people do in their entire lifetime in the EOD community. So, the guy has like balls big enough to put in wheelbarrows. <laughs> big brass balls. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so yeah, that's what's coming on next, and then we've also got Charles Post coming on, and then who else we got? Uh, we've got Adam Yankee from the Journal of Mountain Hunting. What are we talking about with him? Uh, probably lots of various things. He, I haven't actually sent you this yet, but he sent me uh, a, a film that is not being released yet that they're going to be putting out very soon. There's some really cool characters on there. 
Uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about that trip, and I tell you, it was nails. From what I, I need to watch the last ten minutes of it, but absolutely nails in BC for goats. In fact, I've seen some pictures. You've yeah, there's, uh, he's put yeah. up a lot of pictures. Yeah, I'll send uh, that, you the that does look uh, pretty cool. Um, we've just uh, saw yesterday in local news to uh, where we live in Scotland is that one of the only dairy, uh, I think, I'm not sure if they're a producer or just a kind of a bottler, but I'm, I'm not sure. But they've gone back to using uh, glass bottles. And I'm pretty sure if you go back and listen to some of our podcasts from more than a year ago, we actually brought this up and said, why has no one gone back to glass bottles? It's kind of crazy that uh, it, it makes sense to me. You know, it's a it's a product that is continuously. You know, your average household goes through at least uh, probably think, one one big one, thing of yeah, milk a week. Yeah. And I mean, it's on your doorstep now, uh, and they do deliver, by the way. Oh, I'll have to I think so, that. but maybe not to you because you're a bit far out in the sticks. I don't know. They deliver. Ve- uh, I get vegetables delivered to me. <laughs> yeah, so I also get vegetables delivered to me now. Me and Byron from different uh, producers, green grocers, and um, it's really, really nice because we get lots of seasonal veg. Do you get? Do you get a surprise? Like, do they? Do you know exactly what you're getting? Or uh, the only thing that I've asked for is mushrooms because I eat a lot of mushrooms. But everything else is a complete surprise. Yeah, I like um, that. Um, I don't. One of ours is, is fruits now. Oh no! See, I we say no fruit, okay, uh, because we just want veg, okay. Uh, but yeah, so, so, uh, I bet you other people have it in the local area. It's bound uh, to be around the country. It it basically is these vegetable boxes, and it's from a local greengrocer, and they deliver it once a week to your house. And I pay ten pounds for mine, and that I actually is almost too much. Same, I think we're about the same cost. It's all local produce, and it's almost too much. Almost too much. But you know, one thing, it's forced me to eat a lot more vegetables. I agree. Uh, but secondly, it's all seasonal, um, and it's all got dirt and mud on it. And yes, I I really like it. It's I think it's good a, for the immune system. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a few worms and stuff. Now it's really really nice uh, produce. Uh, but I would love to get bottled milk again. Well, I'm going to look into it now that they're doing it. Yeah. I remember it as a kid. I know. I remember also when it was cold in the winter and it used to push pop, the foil at the top. Push the foil, yeah. It's making us sound old. All the <laughs> young not, kids we're, listening to this won't even know what we're, we're talking about. We're not even that old. <laughs> <laughs> it was probably about f- 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 more than f- just more than 15 years ago, I think. Yeah. I remember it. But you think about um, places like Africa, like bottled Coke, and especially Zimbabwe. They never really truly went... Uh, yeah, okay, they do have plastic bottles, but... It's still bottled was still very common, mm. and especially uh, when I was in Mozambique, I remember the bottles were so worn that you couldn't even see the Coke on no. them because they'd been recycled that many times. I, I think there's nothing wrong with that. Same when I drove up Namibia uh, when I was in the Caprivi a couple of years ago. The same deal. Almost every place you stop, as soon as you get away from the big urban centres, because when we're in Joburg, I think it's basically all cans of Coke, yeah. which are a different size and taste slightly different to ours for some reason. Uh, but yeah, yeah they've bot- got little ridges on them. Yeah, little it's ridges, really and weird. also the, I don't know why, but the actual, the way that they paint, the, the, the red the is can, different. The yeah. red is slightly different. But right? they, they, they kept their incentive schemes, though, in Africa, so the they get paid for, for, bottles. for and the cans, mm. how much they collect, which means that, I mean, there's obviously rubbish everywhere, but it means there is actually an incentive for people to be collecting it, and which there was. Which mm. is pretty cool. Uh, I think that, that uh, that's a complete sidetrack. Yeah, <laughs> talking about recycled stuff. Uh, yeah, so enjoy these enjoy these speeches, uh, and at some point the full festival will be up uh, online as well. Oh, I I, I was going to say on the news yesterday when we were driving in, um, the government was talking about the regulation of wood burning stoves. 
I've missed this. It's coming in. In cities. Yes. Uh, I'd love to see them try and do that in the country. No, they said it has to be proportional because it didn't make sense that you put the same limitations as someone living in the countryside that has very little pollution to someone living in central London, which that's actually the first time I've ever heard the government actually talk a little bit of sense about proportional um, things. So they're, they're going to be banning uh, certain stoves as well as certain fuels within certain areas. Dirty fuels. But this is, where, this is where you could get totally screwed. It'll be down to the councils to decide what they want to do. Well, keep an eye out for that. <laughs> You know what's going to happen is people are going to have to rip out all these biomass boilers that they put in that feed it pellets. <laughs> that that's probably that that's how stupid the government is with regard to changing regulations. As they decide something that they incentivize is now no longer good for the environment. We'll see. Yeah, I mean, I guarantee that there'll be certain coals that they'll be trying to get rid of coal completely. I imagine definitely. But I, I actually read something not that long ago about wet wood burning no, wood that, that wasn't seasoned yes, properly. That was also the thing. Um, mm. That they were talking about. It doesn't burn as well. It doesn't burn. And very so you well. end up with a lot of emissions. Huge amount of moisture as well comes off it. I bet you there's somebody who's a, a heating engineer or something who's, who's well up on this who can send us an email. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I bet you there is. Anyway, uh, we will leave you to it and enjoy the show. What will be in store for us and the wider community as the years go by is at the very best uncertain. All of us, every single one of us here, will play a role in shaping that story, either by our actions or our inaction. As a teenager, I lusted over the stories of old, as I'm sure many of you did here, the adventures of a time long past, and I'd somewhat resigned myself to seeking out the very best of the hunting opportunities which remained. In fact, it was this mindset and thinking that led me to meet one of our speakers tonight, Dia van der Lange, who's flown out from South Africa to speak tonight. Much has changed over the last hundred years, and I looked upon the opportunities of the past with envy. As far as I was concerned, the golden days of hunting were long gone by the time I was born. However, as I got older, I realized just how defeatist that was. I realized that in spite of what may have been, right now, as we sit here tonight, is the greatest era in hunting's history. And I say this because never before will the actions we take in such a confined space of time define our future so drastically. It places an incredible burden on all of us but gives unprecedented meaning to the purpose and legacy that we all leave. If you wanted to make a difference, now is the time to be living. What we do, as to to, what we do today as hunters matters. How we are perceived matters. Doing nothing and hiding from a shifting society is only an option if we are happy to disappear with the sands of time. Does anyone here know what's written on the side of a two pound coin? Around the edge. Feel free to shout out if you know. No one? Standing on the shoulders of giants. It's a quote from the 12th century and it was repeated by Isaac Walton. Not Isaac Walton, he's a fisherman. Isaac Newton. <laughs> it means we build on the progress of our forefathers. Yet within the hunting community, in many respects, we have allowed the foundations of ethics, conservation, sportsmanship etiquette, 
to slide in the wake of over-commercialization, we as individuals are not the most important aspect of hunting. What hunting means is. And be in no doubt, we are not winning. As a community globally, we are losing our relevance in a society which has moved far faster than we have evolved. A society disconnected and removed from the land we inhabit. You don't have to cast your mind back all that far, and hunters were the heroes of every story. They were revered and championed in life, just as much as fiction. Hunters and naturalists were not distinguished from one another. They were one and the same. At some point, this diverged, and with it, a great loss in our deeper connection to the land. In the years which followed the 1890s, in the face of great odds and near certain demise of the big, much of the big game in North America, it was hunters who were at the forefront of a drive to save what was left. Humans had wiped out the passenger pigeon in the blink of an eye, all for greed and agricultural progression. The mighty bison stood at a mere few hundred individuals, herds that would have taken days to pass by, gone, just like that. Name any of the big game now abundant in North America, and at that period in history, population recovery seemed almost a lost cause. But despite this, what seemed an impossible task, a small number of people stood prepared to shoulder the future in defiance of an outcome they could not stand and allow to happen. It was great people, hunters, conservationists, naturalists, and visionaries such as Teddy Roosevelt, Aldo Leopold, George Bird Grinnell, who worked tirelessly for the greater good. A future where hunting formed an integral tool to ensure that the wildlife came first. This is such an acknowledgement, and credit today must go to Shane Mahoney, one of our great modern ambassadors, who continuously instills the virtues and importance of a future where the wildlife comes first. But they didn't do it alone. It required collaboration, with people and organizations who didn't necessarily see eye to eye. With this, they were able to forge a positive future towards a common end goal. John Muir and Teddy Roosevelt disagreed on many things, but they found a way to come together, and what they achieved was quite incredible. This is something we could learn from today, not just between the hunting community and non-hunting organizations, who we all know here are often critical of us, also within our community. In a future where hunting survives, we have to unify far more in thinking, in resources, in direction. We must be bolder in what we expect from ourselves. It was these great men who became the forefathers of conservation and in this also laid down the foundations for an ethic of hunting, which is every bit as relevant today as it was then. We may have failed to keep pace with shifting societal changes, but at the core of what it is to be a hunter, that's never altered. Globally, we have fallen a very long way. What used to be important was the experience and the custodianship of the wildlife and the landscape, where our interest and care extended beyond the species which we pursued, where the idea of honor to yourself, the wildlife, and the environment lay at the very foundation of what it was to be a hunter. As a community, we have allowed the end result to be the sole point of our endeavors. 
we stopped focusing on the experience and the contributing role we played as hunters. Very often, it became about the inches. And in this, we allowed the concept of trophy hunting to be stolen and morphed into something it wasn't. Writers, editors, filmmakers, gun makers, scope manufacturers, the whole community were to blame. We became happy and content with the notion that what we pursued as hunters was only the moment. A moment of success measured by blood in the sand. We saw this in articles, home and abroad. We saw it in advertisement, and we saw it rampant in the rise of hunting videos. Both before and after the wave of online content that today is available everywhere. Ask yourself honestly, what does a kill shot reel say about hunters? Available today online for anybody to watch. The recreational hunter doesn't escape blame either, who with the liberty of free thought bought into the over-commercialization of something so beautiful. We prostituted the most important thing we have, the very essence of who we are. Today, we have over-trivialized hunting for the benefit of a social media following, an often shallow veneer for popularity where it's done for the story first. Our ability as individuals to reach so many people could be empowering for our hunting community, but in the same breath, it is incredibly dangerous. What do you think was the biggest recruiting drive for the animal rights organization last year, PETA? It wasn't something they did, it was something we did. Shoot animals, not selfies. That ring a bell? That temporary profile picture, who thought that was a good idea? Just pause for a moment and reflect on how that looked to someone who didn't hunt. Not a hater, not an anti-hunter, just your average urban dwelling Joe who knows little of hunting. You look bad. And I understand how incredibly easy it would be to get carried away with something like that. But it was naive and arrogant, and it encapsulated in a single action just how deep our lack of understanding goes when it comes to how we shape a positive future for hunting. I don't like to dwell on the negatives or the failures of the past, but I do believe we should learn from them. I see chinks of light in the dark clouds which sit firmly over hunting, and a rewriting of the narrative we tell, where once again the journeys take priority and the wildlife comes first. I see a shift in the natures of the articles in our press, in many of the magazines. I see it with new publications like Modern Huntsman, and we see it, and you're going to see one of the films tonight, and David Wright sitting at the front here from Fieldsports Channel, the nature of the kind of films we should be making, which educate and explain what we do. The last two years have also seen the much newer medium of podcasting forge a powerful and important voice for the thoughtful hunter. We know from our own show just how this can inform and educate people, and crucially, reach people outside of what we may have traditionally seen as our community. And herein lies one of our great failures. Our ability to recognize the simple fact that in order for hunting to continue to play a role in the management of our landscape, it has to both be relatable and relevant in today's world, in a modern society. This is no easy task, but we first have to acknowledge it. We spend far too much time preaching to the converted. We need people to stand up and drive forward 
And sometimes change won't be popular, but the time for such concerns have long passed. We need to push ourselves to a situation where we are proactive and not reactive. Continually we find ourselves on the back foot, defending aspects of hunting which we should have foreseen coming. I believe part of this issue lies in the incredibly short time horizon that we seem to have. Who is sitting down and formulating a strategy for the next hundred years? A strategy to ensure that we pull through the shift in how society views hunting. I hope someone is, because we should be. A longer horizon viewed by people with the right skill set would have foreseen the oversupply of reared game long before it happened, and I know that you all know what I'm talking about. My greatest concern with that is the fact that while we've all been so consumed with a problem entirely self-produced and fixable with restraint and the right leadership, we have ignored pressing global precedents which are being set all around us. We are often blinkered inside our own little island, refusing to comment or be counted on international events. In the last six months alone, British Columbia has shut down grizzly bear hunting, Poland has laid down crippling restrictions on their own hunting culture, and Tanzania is busy imploding as one concession after the next gets handed back to the government. We need to be more engaged on an international stage. At the very least, it allows us to learn and prepare ourselves better here at home. At best, we contribute and we help towards a greater challenge of safeguarding hunting and the sustainable harvest of game around the world. What it shows us now is that the science is no longer enough. It's important, obviously, because we have to be right, but it's no longer enough. If it was, many of the confrontations that we see on moorland management every day in the newspapers would disappear. If science was enough, grizzly, bear hunters, uh, grizzly bears would still be hunted in BC, regulated elephant hunting would be widely accepted, and Cecil the Lion would be a name that none of you knew. But it's not. The fact is, in the modern society that we are all part of, the moral reasons that we do what we do matter. This is the reality. It's a reality that we will not change, but we need to understand. There must and there has to be a morally acceptable justification for our actions. Without this, any expectation that we will convince a disinterested, disconnected urban majority is destined for failure. It would be very neat for me to conclude some sort of positive outcome for the future of hunting in a single line or some great epiphany that I'd come up with, but I can't because, as we all know, it's a complex issue. I do, however, believe that we would be facing a very different proposition if we all expected just a little bit more from ourselves. What many of the great hunters and naturalists had in common was a deep-seated connection with the wilderness. More often than not, this is lost today. We are not honest with ourselves or our motives enough. We fail to appreciate the small things with enough gravity. We are increasingly surrounded by taglines and strap lines like hunterversionist. I'm sure you've all seen it online, Facebook. Many of us embrace it and proudly. But are we being honest? Ask yourself the question, what do you really do? What makes you, as a hunter, a conservationist? If you're going to say it, you need to own it. If you can't give your time, give your money, but be invested in more 
than what you can get out of it. What made the great hunter-conservationist was love and dedication to the natural world, a desire to understand and learn. We must realize that it is no longer an argument that our actions are sustainable. Why would we be doing something that wasn't sustainable? Our aim should always be enhancement. We must take greater personal responsibility and our organizations should be brave enough to lay down an ethic which challenges us. Every time you hunt, be that a driven day or stalking on the hill, the expectation should always be that you will take home what you kill. If you share a few hundred birds between a group of friends, you should be prepared to take home every single bird that has fallen. You may be told at the end of that day that that comes at an extra cost. Market prices might be up. Demand abundant. Then the choice becomes yours. But the expectation should be that we are responsible for the lives that we take. This has to be the case. And often it's not. We need to rebuild that connection. From here... We must grow, and we have to grow. We must reshape and rewrite the hunting narrative to be relevant today. It can be done, and it will work if the wildlife comes first. Realize that all the people and the agendas who would like to wipe hunting from our future have just as many hours in the day as we do. They don't have time machines. So what does that tell us? It tells us we must be smarter. We must work harder. We must be more dedicated and resolute. It may be politically correct to tell kids of today that it's the taking part that counts. We all know that's a lie. There'll be no taking part medal for the hunting community if we fail to find a foothold in the future. And we must. Our population is climbing from 7 to 8 billion people and probably will reach 9 in the future. And it will be the value given to wildlife and wild places by hunting, which allows us to safeguard the very soul of our planet. It's said that one person can change the world. We don't have one. We have an entire community. If one person can change the world, imagine what we can do together. Let the emotion of what you could lose drive you. Feel it in the pit of your stomach and take ownership of your future and our future. We must find a voice, the voice of the modern hunter, because it is the modern hunter that we must become to survive. This is our time. Thank you. I'd like to welcome to the lectern David C.P., who's going to give the next speech of the evening, which uh, I think is going to be a bit shorter than mine, he said. Uh, David uh, has been a friend of ours for longer than I care to remember, and much of the conversations of the work that we do now, my, my brother and I started uh, with a beer <laughs> and David somewhere in Denmark. So David, please come up and uh, address your audience. Hello. 
Yes. Surprisingly enough to some, I actually uh, make my money doing radio, uh, which you can't hear with my uh, microphone control. Um, I've been really... Oh, let's see how this works. Yes, it might actually work. Good. Technology is not my forte. I like being outside. Um, first of all, uh, I really look forward to coming here. I am... Uh, Danish by nationality, born and bred. Um, I've been looking so much forward to coming over here, talking to you guys, and showing you the world from our side. It's very hard to do this after a speech like Byron just did, but I will try to just <laughs> maybe reach the ankles of giants. Um, so, for the future of hunting. I always love traveling my work. This is what I do. This is what I love doing. It's my choice in life. I am a professional hunting promoter. I have dedicated my entire life to make other people understand my passion and the importance that we keep doing this. Not just us, the camo brigade, the tweed army, but everybody on this planet needs to understand why Keeping our culture alive and our way of viewing the world is important for keeping this world alive. Um, so, um, so that's just my general sentiment of why I get up in the morning. Um, I come from quite a different world. I come from a, uh, a different culture. Uh, the Danish hunting culture and mentality is quite different. Let me just give you a few pointers. We, uh, when I flew in this morning, I've always heard that Ah, in Denmark, we're this agrarian country where uh, we run around these forests, semi-naked, dressed in wolf skins and with horns on our helmets and kill stuff. Um, it's kind of true sometimes, but, um, but we are actually a very, very industrialized society. We are a tiny, tiny country with a very large voice. We have 5.6 million people, and as of now, we are 250,000 people who are permitted to go hunting and 178,000 people who actively pay for their license every year. That's my reality. We are enough hunters in Denmark to change an election. This did not happen overnight. This has not been like this. We are more hunters right now than we were in the Stone Age because there was about 5,000 people living in Denmark in the Stone Age. So that's, a, that's pretty easy. But um, We've never been more hunters in Denmark than we, do, than we are right now. So, Danes are the happiest people in the world. I know you've all read that somewhere on the uh, interwebs that you should never trust, but in this case, you can trust it. And I'm going to give you the positive outlook of what uh, Byron was talking about, because we've actually won the war. Yes, that wall that we're all talking about, how the hunting industry is going down, that we're not allowed to do this, that we're not allowed to do that, that uh, we have to do all these tests, all these things that we're all super depressed about, as we should be. We should be pissed about this. We should be angry about this. And we were. So we changed it. Um, to sum it up, um, the fight for the future of hunting did not start yesterday. It will not start tomorrow. It starts today. Every single day. Every single day you get up in the morning, you decide, will I benefit the future of hunting 
or will I keep doing what I was doing that didn't benefit at all? That is what I ask myself every single day. It sounds weird, but it's true. Ask my wife. Yes, you have to turn off Facebook once in a while. The reason why I say this is that this fight is something that happens in the minds of people. What we do have not, it hasn't changed the last 20 years in the mentality. It hasn't actually changed. Our culture is probably one of the last cultures that has preserved something that existed for the last, let's say, 15,000 years. Is that about right? Um, so it's, it's, it's actually not that hard. It's everything else that changes. We just have to decide, will we change with it? Will we, um, will we go quietly into the night? Or will we shout? And that's what we did in Denmark. Because we, um, uh, we had the same problem you have right now in the 80s. When I grew up in the 80s in Denmark, being a hunter was not cool. Wearing a barber jacket was smelly. Yes, it still is. Uh, but it's a good kind of smell, like a Labrador and a Land Rover. Everything British. Um, <laughs> sorry. Um, no. Growing up in the 80s, being a hunter was bad. What my dad did, my dad used to work on the oil rigs. He was never home. When he was home, we used to hunt. There's a very nice film about that. We're not going to show tonight. Um, what my dad did is what he, he decided that that was wrong. His, his boy shouldn't be taught uh, to teach, um, uh, harassed in school because he was wearing a smelly jacket and he was hunter. So he would do hunter's education courses for seven-year-olds. He would show up at my public school wearing full fatigues. You know, back then it was just like a full body suit. He would bring his rifle. He would bring some sort of dead animal. And he would, of course, bring the dog because everybody focused on the dog. But he would bring a gun into a school and we would talk and this, would not, this is not a rural environment. This is a big city environment. And the teachers were like, well, nobody's actually asked us about this before and we don't have any rules. And having my dad there and talking to all these kids and inspiring them with his light and his passion and his great way of telling stories and the way that the kids behaved afterwards, that inspired me to say, well, we can tell this story. This is a good story. This is a real story. How you bring home the food, how you take care of your forest, how you give something back. It's a really good story. I work as a professional journalist. I'm a radio host. People call me up and say, I'm a journalist. I don't have a story. Give me something from nature. And I tell them weird stories about all the stuff that we do in the community and what species are in season right now. And then they will write an article or do a TV show or whatever. And they're like, nature is awesome. We didn't know. This is professional journalists. They're all sitting around there. They're all wanting a story. If you don't give them the story, somebody else will give them the story. The RSPCA is a boring story because it's about guilt. Guilt isn't fun. Fun is fun. What we do is fun. It's a lot easier selling a positive story to people than a shitty story. Ask any politician. Yep. Um, so, this film that we are got, uh, about to show, the film that uh, I am extremely honored to present, it's called Raw. The reason why it's called Raw is from the, uh, uh, the Kiwi tradition of going to uh, New Zealand, 
during the uh, red deer roll and roll. And how you do that is the And it comes from the fact that this majestic animal, this animal that we in a Scandinavian and Germanic culture identify with quite a lot, the royal stag, it doesn't take any shit from no one. It goes on the top of the hill and it roars until everybody else leaves. Or it will fight them and fight them and fight them and fight them until it dies or it kills the bastard. That is what it's about. And in Denmark, we have not been allowed to hunt this majestic, magnificent animal like we've done for 15,000 years with a bow for about 30 years. They banned it in 68, sorry, 40 years. They banned it in 68 like they banned it in Britain. You remember when they banned bow hunting in Britain? What, what year was that? A long time ago. You actually don't remember when they banned bow hunting in Britain. Shame, shame. Remember who, what, what weapon built this uh, great nation? Remember who gave you that weapon? Yes, Norway, Sweden, Denmark. We were all building the longbow. Then we brought it here. Great weapon. Um, we should honor this tradition. And we've done that in Denmark. We fought tooth and nail to reintroduce bow hunting in Denmark. We managed with the Robux in the 90s, but then someone decided that you apparently can't kill anything that's bigger than a roebuck with a bow. I think somebody should tell that muskox that's hanging on my wall. Um, so, in Denmark, we have bow hunting. We have 3,000 bow hunters fighting the government every single year since 1968. But we weren't allowed to hunt red deer. So, Ulrich, who's sitting there, uh, young, very nice specimen of the Danish population, um, speaks fluent Australian. Um, we decided, him and I, that we would go to New Zealand and tell these bastards that, of course we can. We were going to do this, we were going to take this, and then we were going to show it on national television. Because, excuse my French, fuck you. Um, that's why we made this movie. That is what this movie is about. And I, will, I won't say if it worked, but let's just say that when we aired this on national television, do you know how much hate mail we got? Do you know how many positive notes we got from non-hunters who were like, yeah, how can we do that? That is awesome. That, that brings some passion and some meaning into our lives, not just running a stupid marathon. That's actually just running in circles. It's an incredible waste of time. Um, I'm living proof. We got tons, and it was great. And Ulrich got invited back and back and back and back to talk about this movie. I didn't get invited because I have a face that's great for radio. Um, and um, this just shows that people want the story. They want the positive story. They want your story. And don't ever give them the alternative to say no. So I've just summed up quite short how we've done this. How did we change the mood in Denmark from a hunting negative view all through the 90s to the 2000s to now, where being a hunter, if I walk into a bar and tell a person that I'm a hunter in Copenhagen, chances are that I will have about three to four clients for my hunting school when I walk out. Most of them will be women, not because of my looks. Um, good. What well, we done? Fight back. Every single time, fight back. We have to work proactively with legislation 
and organizations, um, not just the hunting-oriented organizations. We have to work with everybody. We talk quite well with the uh, Nature Conservation Association of Denmark, who are on paper anti-hunting. But when you're so many hunters, then they're starting to look, okay, well, that could actually be memberships. We would actually like to tap into that resource. How can we be a part of that? But we can only do that with positive vibes, not negative vibes. Good. Stand tall, be proud, speak up. I face my critics head on. I wear my camouflage in the street of Copenhagen. The problem about wearing camouflage in Copenhagen is everybody wears it. It's become a fashion item. I've started to wear my black leather jacket now because that stands out. And it's like the sea of camouflage hipsters. Could be worse, could be worse, could be blaze orange. People are actually wearing blaze orange who don't hunt. I, I kid you not, it's weird. Um, good. Seek out media opportunity whenever you have, whenever you can, but make sure that when you talk to the media, you know what you're going to say, you know how you're going to do it, and you know what story you're going to pitch. I'm a journalist. I know how to take people apart. So does the other side. Okay? Um, and then you need to organize and criticize slander and shitty journalism. Because journalists are also bad at their job. And they know it, and they hate it. So hammer them with facts. It works. Especially if you write their editor. Yes. Good. Make a stand. We've made a stand. We say there's a definition of hunting. is when you do it legally and ethically. Poaching is when you do it illegally and unethically. That's it. That has become a definition now. You need to start using that definition. And you need to call people out and say, no, 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 that guy is not a hunter, he's a poacher. It's not the same thing. And language is just stuff that we make up. It's ask any language philosopher. Um, we need to clean our own house. We all know stories about people who should not hunt. We all know stories about people who've done stuff in the hunting industry who were either sponsored or aided or paid, and we all deep down in our guts know that ah, maybe it wasn't our company, maybe it was another company, and then we didn't really do anything because we thought, okay, maybe we can just put the, put the turd at the other company's lap because, well, that's not on. It all falls back to us. If one guy messes up wearing green, everybody else gets hit. And organizations need to take care of it. We need to understand this. Companies need to understand this. We need to do something about it. We need to cancel contracts. We need to tell people either you are on the green line or you're off. That's it. You're done. Imagine the stuff that we all know has happened some places being pulled by, let's just say, a football player, a soccer player for the Americans. It would never work. They get fired. So let's do the same thing. It's not very hard. We're professionals. We do a job. Just do your bloody job. Be good at it. Okay. We're all in this together. That is a positive thing. We're all in this together. Not just here. Not just in Europe. Everywhere. We are the biggest global culture on the planet. We're the oldest culture of the human history. 
Yeah. It's awesome. We can tap into this. Work with your competitors. Work with the guy who's better than you are on Instagram or the girl who's better than you are or the ones who annoy you. Work with them. We need each other more than we need competition. The best events that I've ever been to as a professional hunter was hosted by companies in collaboration. It works. It's good for business, it's good for our culture, and it's good for us. Um, that's why I'm, I'm, I'm so incredibly thrilled to see the sponsorship of this event. We cannot do what we do without the companies and the money that they put up for this. It is incredible, and I really hope for anyone who works within the hunting industry, thank you so much for what you do. We cannot, we cannot win this fight without you guys. And you cannot keep your jobs without us. <laughs> so it's, re it's, it's really a win-win. Um, and, and, and that's a good thing. So we are interdependent. Interdependency also means that if I was going to do this speech, I was asking quite a lot of, of, of people from the Isles, asking them, so, so what's the biggest problem about hunting in the British Isles? Say, well, money. Money. Either a guy can afford to go on a shoot, he'll rock up there, he'll shoot, he has no clue about the culture and everything, we'll leave him because it's kind of, yeah, 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 we'll do this and then you can go home and then we can play. Or you won't have access so there'll be another way that you hunt. We need to create access. That is one thing that we have done in Denmark that has really, really worked. We have opened our farms, we have opened our estates, we have opened our hearts to other people. I've I really have to force myself to invite people to my grandfather's estate to invite them to hunt one of my rodeos because I really like my rodeo. I, I really, really, I like them too much. Um, but if I invite people in and I show them this love, I can, I can create another believer. We need to create more believers. People who leave your estates, who leave your events, they need to go from, from your place with a piece of your heart because that's what you've given them. They need to know that, because then that's what they're gonna give to their kids and their coworkers and everybody. And that leads to, we need to stand tall. Simply, we need to stand tall. We talked about in Belgium that we were raised with, uh, I talked to Tom from Belgium, he said that uh, he was raised by his father that we could talk about hunting, but it's not something that you talk about in public. I was raised the same way. There's many things our dads have done right, our mothers, but that one's wrong. We should talk about pump, uh, hunting in public because we are not wrong. Um, to quote somebody who I uh, quite admire, who's done quite a lot for my family, uh, you might know him, I've, I've, I've tweaked a little bit, it's a very good speech in English. Um, just remember that uh, we will fight them in the media. We will fight them in parliament. We will teach their kids, inspire their chefs, bring their college, uh, colleagues out for grade a shoot, great day shooting. We will not hide our, and apologize, but we would fight for the future of our culture and our heritage with inspiration, courage, and conviction. We will not give up. We will never surrender. I have no doubt that uh, we can actually do this and that we will win because there is 
no alternative. Thank you very much. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for your time. Hunting, for me, is a way, dedicated way of life, and I think that is what it should be for every one of us. It is not only a way of making a living. Our forefathers hunted to gather food for their families, and not only food, shelter, skins for clothing, but it's no longer a survival, not only for survival. We can buy meat in a local butcher shop or clothes ready-made. It is a dedicated way of life. It is a great way of meeting friends, be a part of nature, and just escape from the daily hustle and bustle. Africa is one of the most diverse landscapes I've ever been in, and this also gives us the opportunity to boast that we've got over 200 species of game that we can hunt, from the famous Big Five to the not-so-famous Tiny Ten in everything in between there, from kudu to wildebeest, zebra, giraffe, you name it. In South Africa, hunting and conservation goes hand in hand. Um, if there's no hunting, there's no game. That's as simple as it is. For on a daily basis, we get bombarded with questions and accusations that we are murdering animals and ruining wildlife. But actually, it's not. In the words of Audrey Kritzhoff, the CEO of FASA, that sets everything right by saying that the anti-hunting campaigners does not realize that SA, South Africa, sorry, would have no wildlife if, if it wasn't for hunting. South Africa still boasts with 90% of the world's rhino population, and that is only because of hunting. It is not only the rhino that we've saved, it was, it's also animals like the sable, the pontebok, the wild ostrich, um, black wildebeest, all those animals have been saved and reintroduced and numbers brought up by hunting. If you compare South Africa to a country like Kenya that has banned hunting in the 1970s, um, they've already lost 85% of their natural wildlife. Um, it's simple, in South Africa, or Africa, it works. If it doesn't pay, it doesn't stay. But we all know some of this, or maybe, maybe all of this. What I would like to do today is just leave a couple of thoughts with you as hunters of how we should do things. There is a big difference between a non-hunter and an anti-hunter. And according to me, there is no point in arguing with an anti-hunter. Our time should be spent working with non-hunters, turning them into hunters, or just people that can see we are not just a bunch of murdering butchers. Like example, if you've got somebody that is a colleague or a friend that just shows a bit of interest in what, just ask you, how was your hunt this weekend? Next time, take them along and show them what you've done. But by showing them, you might plant the seed and get another hunter. But then the responsibility lies with you to teach those people the right ways and create a proper hunter. Um, if you can't do that, just do meat of your hunt. 
on the next barbecue or the next dinner you've got so that people can see that we are actually really using everything that we shoot. If another thing that we should never do is give anti-hunters the opportunity to fire at us. S simple things like going to a supermarket after hunt, leaving a carcass open on the back of your truck. Just cover it. Then you do not um, tell anybody that you've been hunting, nobody gets offended, no problem. There is nothing cool or much about walking with camo clothing with blood dripping from it into a supermarket. Just clean yourself up, go into the store, get what you want, and nobody gets offended. But these are the things that we do sometimes, and giving anti-hunters the opportunity to get pissed off with us. Another thing which we should never do is shoot what we don't need. Whatever we kill, take it back home. If we can't use everything, give it to your neighbor. If, you can't, if nobody else wants it, feed your animals, then they're still... It's being utilized by giving, just leaving something in the felt and saying, nah, don't worry about it, the foxes will sort it out. It's, somebody's going to find it and somebody's going to be offended by that. And then my biggest thing that I want people to understand is at the end of the day, hunting is not about inches. It is about the memories made, the friendships that you've made on a trip, wherever you've been in the world. That is all I want to say today, ladies and gentlemen, is inches doesn't matter. Hello, I'm, as uh, Byron said, my name's Sam Thompson. Um, I'm a deer stalker from, uh, from a place called Strathgas, which is near Inverness in the Highlands. Uh, and it's quite a hard act to follow, really. <laughs> I didn't really prepare anything when I came, and I'm quite glad I've come last because I can sort of pick a few, a few bits. But um, it's it's such a thing to talk about for me is the future of hunting, and I think we're at a really interesting stage generally as an industry. There's been a lot of talk today about people getting involved, people fighting back, people doing good stuff, and I think merely by the fact that you're all sat here tonight, we're probably preaching to the converted to an extent. Um, that doesn't mean we've not got to do more, but I think the crucial thing going forward for all of us is that we take this message and these things to the wider audience because, as you all know, there's a lot more people involved than just sat here tonight. Um, I think we can look at it from two ways, from my point of view. I think we need to be better at marketing ourselves and what we do. and we need to be better at educating our own people about that as well. Uh, a large part of my job is, is guiding visiting hunters from England and abroad. And something that really astounds me is people that are passionate hunters who have experience and sometimes lots of experience hunting in this country or abroad can be incredibly ignorant about why they're doing it. Um, which is maybe a strong criticism to make, but certainly in my experience I'm something I'm seeing a lot of, and, and it worries me because, as we've been talking about, being able to justify, being able to defend what we do is crucial to it going forward. And yet people that are stalking for fun or shooting for fun or hunting as a passion, not as a profession, 
um, or as an associated profession like we are tonight, those people are our biggest mouthpiece. They are going to know more people than I do that don't understand hunting because all of my friends know what I do and, and, and get that line. We need, when we're going forward, to take this beyond the people that are in the industry, beyond the people that are active on social media. We need to get our new message, if you like, or however we want to put it, to the masses. Um, and I think that means people taking accountability for protecting hunting, which has always, in this country, I think been something that we're quite keen to shirk. We're always very keen to pass that on to our organisations, our representative bodies, whatever we want to call them. And we sort of, when there's a problem, our answer is to uh, turn to the likes of the BASC or the Countryside Alliance or whoever and point the finger at them. And I think going forward, what we need to be doing is pointing the finger towards ourselves and the people we immediately affect. That's different for everybody, but the crucial corner of what we do as Byron pointed out about the grizzly bear hunting in British Columbia, is science. In that case, the science wasn't enough. But equally, if you get your marketing perfectly right without any science to back it up, nobody's going to believe you. And so we need to educate people and we need to do it in a scientific way. We need to be justified in our actions. We need to know that when we go to shoot that deer, we're doing it to protect trees or upland plant assemblages, as I've just been contracted to do. These are terms and these are reasons that we need to embrace and understand. We need to realize that hunting is a tool in land management in this country and, and probably elsewhere in the world as well. And we have a resource of people willing to do that work in a lot of cases and pay for it. That's fairly unique. There's very few people offering to pay to go on holiday and put up a deer fence. We can subsidize what we're doing with recreational hunters who are willing to come and do that. And we need those people to be educated about why they're doing it. Otherwise, I don't know if we're going to be stood here in 25 years having the same conversation. And I really hope we are, because I'm not very good at anything else. So I'm buggered if we all get thrown down. Um, some of the films we've seen this evening have been absolutely fantastic. And I think we can all say that um, the quality of filmmaking that we've seen in the, the industry over the past five or six years has really improved. Social media has become a really big thing and we're all using that, I would suggest, in a professional capacity, in a personal capacity, whatever. Very few now are the people you meet that don't have some access to Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. But I think a lot of that is thinking about the messages we put on. There's nothing wrong, I don't think, with sharing a picture of a dead animal. There's nothing wrong with sharing pictures of hunting. But in that description, in that tagline, we need to put across why. And I think that's easily forgotten. I recently saw a post on Instagram by uh, a major optics manufacturer. And there was a picture of a bloke sat leaning on a tree with a rifle. Pretty much anybody could have taken the picture. It was like school day number one of taking hunting photographs. And the caption to that photograph was, is it a 10-point buck? Is it a 12-point buck? Is it a buck at all? Now, I assume they're talking about white-tailed deer. Otherwise, my roe deer are not going to sell very well this year. But my point is that that was two or three weeks ago. It's really, it's great that we've got a, an audience of people sat in this room who realize that we need to embrace where we're going. But we need to bring everybody with us and we need to try and up the standard across the industry. We need to realize that what message does that put across? That puts across that we care about how big it is because we want to put it on the wall. 
It certainly doesn't say we're managing a deer population well for our identifying stuff with a rifle scope. And for the outside person, there's no mention of meat there. There's no mention of sustainable natural resource management. These are all cast by the wayside. And that person is going to make a snap judgment on that photograph. Not the anti-hunter, but the non-hunter is soon not going to be our friend. And as we go forward, I think we all need to consider that and discuss it more amongst ourselves as well and try and realize that just because it's a competitive product doesn't mean that we can't help each other because, as somebody pointed out earlier, nobody's going to sell any hunting kit when there's no hunting. Um, how long have we got left? You're doing well. Am I? Does that mean lots of time or does that mean I run out of time? Or carry, carry on. Keep going. I'm running out of stuff. Uh, <laughs> um, let me just quick back to my notes. Uh, what else have we said? Uh, film festival, last pages of books. You know, Byron said wildlife has got to come first, and that's the bottom line. The species that we hunt in whatever capacity, they're part of an ecosystem. My job really as a contract deer stalker is not really about hunting deer. I go into estates, I go into forests, and it's about balancing management objectives of that ecosystem. We can't focus solely on the species we hunt. We have to look at that entire situation and try and understand that as best we can. We've got to try and bring with us everybody in that, everybody in the field schools community. It doesn't matter what part of it they're involved in. If we can get across a broad message that we can apply in as many situations as possible and bring everybody's game forward, then we are going to succeed. I think a, something that we maybe need to look at embracing more that we haven't is, is what I would term proper science. Um, I think I can probably count on one hand the number of scientific projects that the, that the hunting industry in this, company, uh, in this country has been involved in. We haven't grasped that defending our sport can be, sim can be more than just the simple line of shooting is good and these are the reasons. If you look at America and the White Wild Sheep Foundation, the Rocky Mountain Out Foundation and all these other associations, they're pro-hunting, but their message isn't hunting. Their message is science about ecosystems, science about species, and we just haven't grasped that yet. There's some fantastic projects being run in this country by the Game Conservancy, the likes of the Rum Red Deer Research Project, but there's virtually no scientific research been done into roe deer, which is probably one of the most prevalent, well, is the most prevalent deer species in the country and one of the most hunted. We haven't decided that we can reach into our pockets to, for, to fund something that's that step further ahead. We haven't made that conscious decision that, right, okay, let's give those guys who are researching deer a load of spotting scopes. And you can carry that all the way through into the marketing. Rather than having that picture of a bloke with a rifle scope looking for a deer, why not have a picture of a guy on a research project doing his PhD with a spotting scope? And that can be our advert. Because it doesn't take a lot from the guy with the spotting scope on the research project learning more about that species to the guy who buys kit because he likes stalking at the weekend buying that spotting scope because he wants to learn more too. If we start thinking outside of the box and we start thinking in a long game, I think hopefully we, can, uh, we maybe can have that conversation again in 25 years. And I'm really struggling because nobody lets me speak for this long, so <laughs> I think I'll, I'll call it there before I say something rude. But uh, thank you very much, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the film.
and I hope that inspired you in some way. I think what everyone had to say was pretty valuable, and I guarantee this is probably going to be one that people revisit in some way or use it in some way. We've uh, we actually uh, had a couple of requests from people who were there on the night at the end of the evening was how can I get a transcript of the speeches or is there another way I can listen to them? Uh, one of them actually came from Glenn Ingram from the British DS Society. Yep. So yeah, now now he can. I'll need to send him this link. Yeah, exactly. Uh, as usual, the show can be downloaded on loads of different platforms, uh, the biggest ones being iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Acast, and Spotify. With the Android apps, as usual, they are slightly lagged. I even noticed that Spotify was about a day out, so... Um, just keep an eye out for that. There's better apps than others out there. Uh, but with iTunes, uh, it is immediate. I'm not saying that everyone has to rush out and buy an Apple device because I absolutely hate my phone for its battery life. But uh, for things like this, it seems to be a little bit better. Mm. Um, Make sure you go check out our social media feeds. Yep. Instagram. Pace underscore brothers, where we put in uh, lots of our pictures. Yeah, we do. And one thing that we use a lot on there is the story because yeah. it, it's kind of fresh and relevant there's a lot of stuff that you won't really see anywhere else on the story so could definitely go and hit that button if you see that there's something new updated if you want to contact us it's pace bro no it's not completely it's not that um, <laughs> delete you delete that we'll cancel that one it is podcast at paceproductionsuk.com and we do always get back to people because we have loads of emails from people and sometimes we, it takes a week or two it does but we love hearing from people so don't be afraid to reach out to us and one other thing that i'm going to ask all of our lovely listeners uh is please keep giving us reviews because it helps huge it does yeah we've had so many nice reviews it's really cool to see um and yep if you are uh, a listener from out with the uk especially um your reviews are really really welcome because the The uk people won't be able to see those reviews yeah the uk people can't see them uh, because they're specific to the country you're in and so if we could get more reviews from the US, Canada, uh, Australia, New Zealand, and some of the Scandinavian countries, that would be that would be awesome. Uh, there was something else I was going to add. Yeah. No, I've completely lost it now. Completely blank? Yeah. No, it was... That's why, as I told you last time, you need a piece of paper to write down your ideas. <laughs> I know. I know. But, I mean, uh, as people probably gather, mostly sh- they're not scripted or anything. They're... Uh, I d- do you know what? Even the last few podcasts we've done, and probably the ones that are, are coming up in the next few days we're about to record, we don't even really write what we're going to talk to people about. No, we don't. Sometimes we have a, a rough idea, because obviously if with certain people it's very obvious what you're going to... Yeah. Kind of what lines you're going to go down. Uh, and you do research on the guest before you come on or you know the guest uh, so that you're not just sitting there with nothing Blanks, to say. Blanks. Blanks But stare. On, on the whole, no, nothing is rehearsed. Um, That's why sometimes the dogs bark or things fall <laughs> over or people arrive while we're recording yeah. the podcast. But it is real and a uh, vast majority of the time recorded in our office just on the edge of the Highlands of Scotland. <laughs> yeah, we, But here for everybody. We're... We are trying to move on to bigger and better things with the show throughout the year and the coming years. Uh, so watch this space. Watch this space. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you in a week's time.